This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Death is nothing to us, seeing that when we are, death is not come, and when death is come, we are not. Who said this? A philosopher born two and a half millennia ago, Epicurus. He was in many ways a remarkably modern philosopher. Catherine Wilson is an Epicurean scholar at York University. Catherine Wilson, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thank you, Nigel. Nice to be here. The topic we're going to discuss is Epicureanism. Now, that obviously comes from the philosopher Epicurus, but could you say a little bit about who Epicurus was? Epicurus was the leader of an Athenian school working in the 3rd century BCE. And you can think of that as coming along a bit after Aristotle. And uh, the school was a competitor with the school of Stoics. They both valued tranquility, but they had very different ontologies and attitudes towards ethics and attitudes towards explanation and were very different in many respects. Do we know what Epicurus was actually like? What he looked like? Was he married? Was he tall? (laughs) I don't know if his uh, physical appearance was described, but he was thought of as someone who had simple tastes. He always said just a bit of bread and cheese is enough for the philosopher. He was thought of as being pious and visiting the temple, despite the atheistic reputation down the ages of Epicureanism. And he liked women. He had a lot of women around, a lot of girlfriends. He thought that the philosophers should probably not marry because children and spouses are a lot of trouble. But he thought that, well, sex at least, love, something the Epicureans were a bit cautious about, but sex at least was a very good thing in the eyes of this school. And that was considered a bit scandalous. This is intriguing. So was the school a den of iniquity? Was there a sort of sense of it being like a kind of non-stop orgy? That may have been how it's the rival school saw it. Epicurus was accused of consorting with loose women. And that's uh, perhaps because the Epicureans actually allowed women in their school, which none of the other major philosophical schools of antiquity did. It was a place you could go if you were intelligent, educated, literate, liked to write and liked the company of men and could enjoy it in ways that the Athenian wife, who was very housebound, could not. So there's a sense in which he could have been a proto-feminist almost. Yes, the things that the Epicureans say about women are not always flattering, but Lucretius in particular, the Roman interpreter of Epicurus, he writes a lot about maternity, love as a renewing force in the universe, and there's a kind of proto-feminism in it. What was Epicurus famous for? Well, first of all, the theory of atoms, the theory that everything is made of invisible particles, which are material, they have size, shape, and motion, they move spontaneously, and by their aggregation and collision and intermingling, they compose everything around us the whole visible world, the many different cosmoi or universes, which are separated by void space, and, of course, the human mind as well. That sounds incredibly modern. It sounds like modern physics. It sounds like modern materialism about the mind. Yes. The uh, only difference, I think, 
in modern materialism is that we don't think that there are soul atoms, which Epicurus did and Lucretius. They thought that the mind was composed of very, very fine, tenuous, small atoms that could flow easily and that could pervade your whole body and make you aware and sensitive and thinking. But they agreed that when you die, the soul atoms dissipate into the air and you're gone. So the soul atoms, it's S-O-U-L, not (laughs) S-O-L-E. So soul atoms, it's almost like panpsychism, the view that there's everything has a soul. I wouldn't go that far. Certainly animals have souls. They're very aware that animals have temperaments and personalities and are sensitive. No problem with that, unlike Descartes. But I don't think they would say that the chair has a soul. You've got to be alive to have a soul. So how did Epicurus come up with something which prefigures modern science? I mean, just by thinking about the nature of the universe, he starts to recognise these, what we would call atoms... Epicurus has, uh, Lucretius mainly, a lot of observations that he thinks suggest the existence of atoms. There's, of course, the famous illustration of the motes in sunlight that you see when a sunbeam is shining through your window. But he says um, that the atoms are much, much smaller even than those motes, but they give you an idea of spontaneous motion in little particles. The Epicureans notice that even solid substances get worn away. So steps are worn away over hundreds of years by people walking on them. Water dripping down can create dents and hollows. Lucretius mentions that when you feel the wind in your face, it must be material because you can feel something pushing against you. And then there are a lot of observations based on the changes of colors and textures, For example, the ocean looks different at different angles and different light conditions. And they think this shows that it's just the arrangement and the relationship to light of things that makes them appear the way they do. Things can't have a single color. The color just depends on the observer and the surrounding conditions and the atomic configuration. And where do God or gods fit into this picture of the universe? Epicurus um, says that they are happy, immortal beings inhabiting the intercosmic spaces out there where we have no contact with them, they have no contact with us. They would presumably have to be atomic and immortal. He says they're immortal. Though everything else in Epicureanism says nothing is immortal because everything gets reduced to atoms in the end. But what they didn't do is they didn't create the universe. They don't supervise the universe. Lucretius takes an even more radical standpoint. He really thinks religion is dangerous. It makes people afraid. They're afraid of hell, punishment and retaliation. And it makes them do things for absurd reasons. He cites Agamemnon's sacrifice of Iphigenia to change the winds and go fight his battles. And he thinks that's an example of where religion gets you. In obedience to supernatural powers, you do violent, brutal things. Well, that's presumably from fear of pain and suffering, largely. And that has a part to play in his theory as well. Yes. The Stoic idea seems to be pain and suffering are inevitable. So 
You just remind yourself that they're inevitable, everybody's subject to them, and you create an attitude in yourself of distancing yourself from them and reframing the situation so you don't care about it so much. The Epicurean approach is to minimize pain, to try to organize your life so that you suffer less and cause less trouble to other people. And pain is something that they admit you can't always make go away just by your attitude or just by reframing the situation. Pain is very real, both mental and physical suffering. With Epicurus's atomism, we've got a kind of science. But he also had things to say which were very much like what we would call anthropology or speculative history about the origins of humanity. So for the Epicureans, of course, human beings were not created by a divinity, so there was no plan for them. They sprang from the earth like the other animals, and this meant that all of human culture was invented by people themselves. They weren't taught anything by the gods, they weren't shown anything by the gods. They looked at the other animals and discovered techniques like weaving, from birds and spiders and singing, and everything else came from human ingenuity. Epicurus and Lucretius look back to a time when we were hunter-gatherers. They get interested in how technology developed when people learned how to work metal. They think this came about when forest fires liquidated ores and they saw that metal could be formed into various shapes. And this was the beginning, they thought, of everything wonderful about civilization. Roads, walls, sculpture, art. But at the same time, it was the beginning of what Rousseau later described as the moral downfall of the human race. Because you got agricultural implements, hence slavery, and, of course, weapons, hence warfare. What I know best about Epicurus is his theory about death. Could you say a bit about that? The famous tagline is, death is not to be feared because where we are, death is not, and where death is, we are not. The idea is you're not going to experience death, you're not going to experience anything after death, so nothing to be feared or hoped for. And in case you think dying is going to be painful, many people say they're not afraid of death, but they are afraid of dying. Epicurus says, perhaps a bit optimistically, that since dying involves the soul atoms dissipating and leaving the body, you're going to lose your sensation gradually as you're dying. So your pain will ebb away and your worry and anxiety will ebb away. So you shouldn't fear the process of dying either. He also says things about what did or didn't happen before we were born. We worry about what might happen in the future, but we don't, most of us, agonise about all the time that we didn't exist. That's right, but I think that's a really bad argument. I'm not too persuaded by what Epicurus has to say about death. Of course we don't mind things happening before we were born, because we weren't in any shape to enjoy them. But uh, what bothers most people about death is that it's like leaving a great party. <laughs> and going home to some awful situation. It may not be awful, but it isn't the great party that you're in. So as long as people are enjoying life, wanting to read the newspaper and see what's happening, seeing what's happening with their children and their grandchildren, the Epicurean perspective on death is not completely satisfying. Let's talk about his influence, because you've already mentioned Lucretius several times, and Lucretius was a great interpreter and expander of Epicurean arguments. 
Could you say something more about who Lucretius was? Yes, uh, Lucretius was a Roman poet, first century BCE, and he had access to many Epicurean texts that were lost, and many of them were lost, as you know, in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. But Lucretius had the text of On Nature in lots and lots of books, books being scrolls, so not what we would think of as books. But Epicurus had presumably given a whole account of the weather and life and death and politics and religion and love and every single topic was treated by Epicurus. And Lucretius had this material and worked it into extremely beautiful poetry in six books, De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things. That text was largely lost. Stephen Greenblatt has a good study of how it was rediscovered in the Renaissance when very few copies had survived. And so it got into the 17th century in translations and editions and was read by almost every student studying Latin in the 18th century in elite contexts. It was first studied for its poetry and only later for its philosophy. So it entered the humanist tradition with the rediscovery of antiquity, but it must have been considered quite a dangerous text because it involves a critique of religion. Yes, exactly. So people studiously avoided commenting very much on the religion when it was first studied, but it did begin to be talked about as philosophy in the 17th century. We can tell that lots of people were reading with great interest Lucretius, certainly Locke and Hobbes, and later Hume. Rousseau pretty much rips off Book 5 of the History of Humanity in his Discourse on the Origins of Inequality. Then in the 19th century, John Stuart Mill, Bentham, I'm sure, was reading Epicurus. And so his influences ripple down through the centuries through Lucretius particularly, and then the rediscovery of Lucretius, the selective use of Lucretian ideas in in the Enlightenment and so on, and right through to the 19th century. But does that mean it all ended with people like Mill, there was nothing left in the 20th century or now in the 21st century of Epicureanism? Well, what um, seems to have happened is that when atomism became a real scientific theory, and nowadays people can actually see atoms or at least visualize atoms with the right kind of optical and microscopical equipment. But when it became a real scientific theory, you didn't so much need a philosophical theory of atomism. And of course, our atomism is far more complicated than anything Epicurus or Lucretius could have envisioned. In moral philosophy, I think it was absorbed by utilitarianism, which is still a major movement. And In politics, well, it was absorbed by archaeology and anthropology, the real as opposed to speculative study of the past and our hunter-gatherer existence, which Lucretius describes very affectionately. We've had a recent resurgence of interest in Stoicism, which isn't just a theoretical interest in what the Stoics happen to believe. It's a group of people trying to live by Stoic principles, by Stoic meditation techniques and so on. Do you think there's any hope for a revival of Epicureanism? That's a good question because I've been wondering what attracts people to Stoicism. And I think it's the idea of control. By the right kind of mental technology, you can get a grip on your life and your emotions and philosophy can help you do this. If there's going to be a revival of Epicureanism, I think it will stress 
something a bit different. There is the message that by being prudent and cautious and thinking about the pains that will result from certain courses of action, you can prevent bad outcomes. But one of the more appealing aspects of Epicureanism, I think, is it's a very compassionate philosophy. There are lovely descriptions of animal suffering, the cow who has lost her calf and is looking for it and moaning. There's Lucretius's extreme skepticism about warfare. There's a kind of pacifist message in Lucretius that I find very compelling, and this um, kind of empathy for the sufferings of humanity, sufferings in love, sufferings in bereavement, and where the Stoics really want you to shut down those emotions or try not to be bothered by them. Epicureans think you're going to be bothered by them. You're a material being. These things impinge on you. The mind is not a separate substance that can just control everything. So I find that refreshing and realistic. Catherine Wilson, thank you very much. (laughs) You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.